I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. Yeah, I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told. So I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. This is the Athletic Hockey Show Prospect Series. Hey everybody, Max Boltman here alongside Corey Promman and Scott Wheeler for another episode of the Athletic Hockey Show's Prospect Series. Talking about a few different things today. We'll get into the Chipotle All-American game. We got a good mailbag on tap. But I want to start, Corey, with your U23 rankings, which are always one of the more interesting parts of, of midseason for me is checking to see how you've had guys moving. And uh, as is one of our favorite activities on the show, I know Chris Peters will be sad that he missed it. Uh, Scott and I will, will do a little bit of interrogating you uh, on the list. But before we get into that and all the fun that accompanies it, uh, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about putting this list together because it, it is such an interesting project where you're going to rank guys that were drafted six months ago against guys that were drafted five years ago. And I, that obviously creates uh, quite some challenges, I would imagine, when you're just, you know, deciding between how you rank a Connor Bedard versus Jack Hughes, for example, at the very top. Yeah, uh, one of the uh, common criticisms of this exercise that I do twice a year is how do you compare a guy who's in the NHL to a guy who's not in the NHL? You know, that seems like such a, you know, an abstract exercise. And then of course, a week ago, we saw that exercise play out in, in real life as uh, a top four defenseman and Jamie Drysdale is traded uh, for a guy with zero NHL games in Cutter Gauthier. So, you know, NHL teams do this so we can do this. Uh, doesn't mean it's easy, though, when you have to account for the fact that, especially when you get have guys who have pro games, never mind NHL games, that data is so much more important uh, than anything you see at the junior or the college level. It's you know it, it affirms that they can make the jump and that their games will translate. So you have to make all those kind of risk calculations into the process. And you know when a guy gets into the NHL and has even some success, I put uh, extreme uh, uh, weight on that. Uh, just because of how difficult it is to have NHL success, uh, but yet you're you know you're evaluating the toolkits. You're you're still projecting players, even when they're 21, 22, and in the NHL, they still have development to do. And, and in some cases, you may think they they may not have a ton of development left. This might be what they are based on your uh, assessment of the of the player. Uh, so like I said, it's difficult. But also um, another thing to keep in mind is even though it is a uh, 150 something player list. It, that spans five age groups. So, you know, it's not a ton of players per age group, probably about maybe 25 to 35 uh, typically. Uh, so even though if your players might be 100 on that list, that might be the same as saying, oh, I think he'd be the 20th best player in a given draft. Yes, and obviously you, you say five class. So really it's more like four and a half years since, you know, the older guys on this list have been drafted. But it, it's still a tall task. And I think what you just said there, basically the, the takeaway, if you're on this list, you're an average first round pick or better uh, over the last five years. Correct. Yeah. All right. So let's dive into the good stuff then. Uh, Scott, I want to give you the first, uh, first question here. Uh, you can be the good cop or the bad cop, I suppose. Was there something on this list that jumped out to you uh, first looking at it? There were really only two, if you will, that, that sort of jumped out to me if we're, if we're in the, the, holding Corey's feet to the fire business, at least. Um, I mean, it's obviously, this is an extremely 
extremely difficult thing to do, especially when the list is 100 plus players deep. Uh, Perfetti at 63 was probably the first one and maybe the biggest one that jumped out at me. He was behind some players, including a player like William Eklund, who has some similarities in his profile, uh, who I think he's a has been a clear cut above uh, Eklund in particular. Uh, I mean, you're nitpicking because they're only a few slots apart, really. Uh, but Perfetti, uh, I've been a big, I mean, it's well documented. I've been a big fan of Cole Perfetti for a long, long time. I think he's one of the smartest players in the NHL at the moment, regardless of age. Uh, and I think he's going to be that sort of 60, 70 point guy uh, in prime of his career. I think that's the kind of talent we're talking about. He's going to be a top six player in the NHL. He's already played in that top six in Winnipeg and had some success. He's clearly a power play type. I'm not sure a player like William Eklund, for example, or Samuel Hanzik, who was ahead of him. I'm not sure those guys have that kind of quality in terms of offense at the next level. Uh, obviously, Eklund's already playing in the NHL, and I think it's uh, Perfetti's been a cut above there in terms of side-by-side comparison of what those two players have looked like with their respective teams. They're obviously in different situations. William Eklund's playing for a bottom feeder. Cole Perfetti's playing on a competitive team. Uh, so there's a little more talent around a player like Cole Perfetti than there is around uh, an Eklund. Uh, but that was, that was probably the one, like, he would have been a top 50 guy for sure for me, for example. So... That was probably the the only one that where where I think our tiers definitely uh, definitely differed. Yeah, and there's like a 30 spot gap between Cole Perfetti and Seth Jarvis, who I, I think that's the same gla- draft class we're talking about. There, fairly similar production at this stage of their careers. I, I think that is an interesting one. Yeah, in terms of perf- well, I could do the two of them. In terms of Perfetti versus Eklund, uh, I mean, yes, obviously uh, Perfetti's having a much more productive season uh, and. I, I think you have to give credit to Perfetti, not to say, oh, he's on a top team. I think he's a top, they're a top team in part because of the players that are on the team. And that includes Cole Perfetti. So you have to give him some credit in that regard. And the other way, I I don't like it when guys say, well, he's on a bad team, so he's not producing. Well, you know, he's playing a lot of minutes on that bad team, maybe help them stop losing so much. So I think that's always a calculation for me uh, when, when I think about team context. But also they are a draft class apart you know, whatever, 10, 11 months apart, Perfetti uh, was, was injured last season. And this is, you know, so it's, it's hard to make a, du- a direct comparison there. But I think Eklund, a year from now, I think we'll have more offense. I think he's going to be a really good top six forward in the league for a long time. I still I think the same about Perfetti, too. In terms of the long-term projections, uh, the, the distinction there for me would be the skating, where I think Eklund is a dynamic skater um, who I think will be a top-tier NHL skater, uh, over the course of his career, and that has always been Cole's weakness. That being said, Cole is much smarter, much more creative, a playmaker uh, than Eklund, who I think is very skilled and creative. But I think those are the two distinctions there. Um, and I have them rated similarly as players. I, I guess uh, Scott would say one is significantly better than the other. Like I said, I think one has a significant edge in the skating department. I think the other one has a significant edge in the creativity department. I think over the long term, they will probably both project out similarly, even though I get it that one's production currently is at a tier higher right now. In terms of Jarvis uh, versus Perfetti, uh, that's one where I would have a little bit more of an issue. Like I said, I have Jarvis notably higher. I mean, he's had a lot of success on a, on a very com- a competitive team right now. He has a very um, uh, translatable game to, to, to the NHL level. We're seeing that in terms of how, much success he's had not only in the regular season, but especially in the playoffs. He's been, I think, you know, he's been very good in postseason hockey for Carolina. Great skater, a tremendous engine, a lot of skill too. Um, I think even though they are in the same class, I think Jarvis has proven more as a pro at this current stage. I think he's deserving of, of the higher grade. All right, I got one for you then uh, with, with Brock Faber because he's he's ranked pretty high. I mean, to, to give you credit, it's not like he's way down the list. He's at 30th, and as you point out, over five draft classes, that puts him as like a top 10 pick all day. So not a low ranking on him. I, I just wonder how when you're parsing him, and especially what he's done this year, against a guy like Alexander Nikishin, who rates for you, I think, 23, or even a Bowen Byram who's had the injuries. He's obviously got the offense, but... How do you weigh what Brock Faber has been able to do? And having worked on, I guess, on a list like this with you before, I know it's not something you sit down and do in a day. Like, right. what, what was the process of moving Brock Faber within this list throughout this season? And one of the parts of this process is, and it's not something that's determinative in where I put guys where, but I like seeking external feedback, particularly from within the NHL. 
And I send this list around and the week or two before it publishes to people within the league just to get, you know, hey, where do you think this guy is way off here, way off there? Kind of like what we're doing right now, essentially. Um, and there was the uh, one or two votes for favor in the current slot saying that he should be significantly higher. And I understand that. I mean, this guy's playing top pair minutes in the NHL right now. He's, I called her a uh, favorite, depending on the extent of Bedard's injury, maybe even might even win it when it's all said and done. Uh, I may, I guess not because of Bedard's uh, season to date and, and what the, the media generally thinks of the player, but you never, you never know. Again, favors having a great year. I get it. So it's, it's a tough one because he is like that. He's playing huge minutes. Um, been a big part of Minnesota's team this year. He's a great skater. He competes really hard. And the big thing with Faber this year has been the offense. Previously, that was not really a part of his game as a junior player or as a collegiate player. And now he's on an NHL power play. He is pointing on a regular basis. And that's kind of where the difficult part of this of a projection is, is when a guy makes a massive jump, an unexpected jump relative to anything you've seen before, you have to make a, a basically a guess. Is this real? Or is this maybe playing a little bit above his head? Is Brock Faber going to be a power play guy in five years from now in the NHL? Are they going to be happy with him in that spot? Or will they find somebody better to fill that spot over the, over the long term? I've always thought he's a smart player. I never really thought of him as like a high-end playmaking type outside of how he uses his feet. Um, so that's where, the, like, I get it. If you just look at the production just this year, and how he's played just this year, you would think he's a projected NHL all-star. You would think, you know, he should be 15 spots higher than he is. But from what I've seen over of him over the course of his career, I have some mild uh, issues in terms of projecting out that offense consistently over the course of his career. If I were to add uh, a sort of second one, I kind of hinted at a second one. Uh, it would probably be sort of on that same note and in that same range, actually direct, I believe directly behind Brock Faber at number 31 uh, in Dmitry Simashev, who again, I, I would obviously has, has proven he can hang at, uh, at the KHL level has defended well at the KHL level has the size and the skating and the length that everybody covets in a sort of stay at home, solid two way top four defenseman. But I think raises similar questions to Faber in terms of the offense, and maybe even more pronounced questions to Faber in terms of the offense. Uh, Simashev's just a player who, in talking with scouts this year, it sounds like there have been a few scouts who've been disappointed with how he's performed at the KHL level. The fact that he hasn't really taken a step, at least offensively, he's still playing good minutes on a good locomotive team. Uh, he's sort of defending to positive results defensively, all of that. Um, but 31 is is very high on a list like this. 31 is ahead of some premium, premium talented players. Uh, some players who, who are sort of in the 30s and 40s who are high-end, high-end types. Uh, and Simashev, I'm just not sure that if he can't get the offense, is he going to be such a standout defensively? Is he going to be a Jacob Slavin type, a Brock Faber type defensively that he warrants that kind of a, a sort of ranking? And it just feels to me like it's maybe a little bit early to be making that determination on him, even if he does have the length and the skating at a very high end level. Uh, so that was that was just one that uh, I felt there there maybe should have been a little more caution on. Yeah, I mean, when you're looking at guys at the KHL level, especially those are very difficult evaluations. And and frankly, a lot of the rationale you're going to hear for why I like Simashev so much, sorry, Simashev so much it's going to sound really similar to the arguments we made a year ago this time about him yes he has a size he's a very good skater for that size he competes hard and then the question becomes the offense and when we talked about Simashev last season in this context we mentioned the junior team he played on which was loco which was a clear top team in that league and made it difficult to always get the consistent ice time even though by the end of the year in the playoffs he was getting that it's kind of the same situation this year for both him and for daniel boot a uh, locomotive currently is arguably the first or second best team in the KHL right now. Um, it's been difficult for both of them to get consistent ice time on such a competitive team. And so it's still a lot of projecting what their offense is going to be. And, you know, I kind of projecting that I think Simashev in two or three years is going to be in that league, kind of what Alexander Nikishin is right now, which is maybe not quite to the extent I have him a tier or so below that, but that's, what I think based on what I've seen of the player and the one junior game he played this year, for example, and I watched that game and he was making a ton of play, showing a ton of skill, like 
It's but it's one that was one game, mind you. His whole year's been in the KHL level, um, so it's difficult. It's it's a lot based on what I know about the player and what I've seen of him before, and I get it. And this is why I talked about at the, at the beginning of the conversation. It's projecting guys who are 18 who still have a lot of development ahead of them versus guys who are 21, 22 who you have those assured answers on already. Uh, it can make me look very foolish in five years. And, uh, but I think, like I said, just, this is just what I think about the player. I think he has all the tools. I think in time, the offense will be there. Not at a high end level. I don't think he's an elite puck mover. I, don't, I never really thought that either, but I think it will be good enough given how good a skater and defender he is to be a big minutes player in the NHL. That's why he was a sixth overall pick. You, you mentioned Nikishin. Is, is he going, is Simishev going to be closer to Nikishin in terms of the, the offense? I mean, you mentioned you don't think he's going to get there. Uh, but is he going to be closer to, Nik- to Nikishin or is he going to settle into more of a group like Shakir Makhmadoulin did, who actually ended up having some some real offense at the uh, at the KHL level before coming over and showing some offense with the Barracuda and the AHL as well, um, but is ultimately not the sort of premium, premium top 30 guy that, that a Nikishin is, uh, relatively speaking. So, no. I, I- I mean, I think he fits in in between them. And frankly, on my list, they, he fits it in between them. I don't think he's going to have quite the offense of Nikishin, who has a high-end shot, and I think a little bit, at least just as much, if not a little bit more natural playmaking in him, which I didn't think, mind you, when he was a teenager. And then compared to Mikama Doolin, I think they have some similarities in the size, skating, good, not great puck movers. But where I think the distinction would be is I think Simashev is a harder defender to play against. He has a, he has a, he has a really high compete. He has some physicality in him that I think Makamadoulin can lack at times. So that's why I think not quite Nikishin, not quite Makamadoulin. I think somewhere in the middle. That's my projection for Simashev. A few minutes ago when you were talking about kind of when you see something new from a player and then having to decide how quickly to update that as what they are versus a blip. It, I think there's a dovetail there with how you handle guys who for however long in their career have been treated as really high on a list. And maybe there is a, a dip in production and how quickly do you weigh that? And I think that comes into play uh, for two pretty recent first overall picks, Alexi Lafreniere and, and Yuri Slavkovsky, uh, both on the, still in the top 20 on your list. Although there are some guys behind them that have already, even in some cases younger than them have had more success. You still keep those two really high on the list. What kind of goes into to how to place them? I think both have looked quite good this year. I'm not saying they aren't without their imperfections, but I mean, you know, the Rangers are having a ton of success. Uh, Lafreniere has been very good for them this year. Uh, I think, you know, we've, uh, I think, uh, I think it was Harmon Dial's article the other day kind of showed just how good he has been even strength uh, the other day. Um, you know, and especially because, you know, that, that first power play we know has been loaded for years and it's difficult to get the prime power play minutes in, in New York. And he's still playing really well, showing a ton of skill, competing, I think, better, more like how I, I thought he was as a junior um, on a consistent basis. The skating is still an issue, but I think he, this guy has uh, so much skill in hockey since I think he's going to be a very good top six forward for a very long time. Um, like I said, on that team in, in New York, he's going to have to earn every bit of ice time he gets. And will he ever get the premium minutes? I mean, I, I figure he will at some point. You know, Chris Kreider and Artemi Panarin are not going to be elite players forever. He will get his opportunity there at some point. And given he, he signed a, a bridge deal, uh, I think they have a very interesting decision to make on Alexi and how much they sign him for uh, soon. And in terms of Slavkovsky, uh, you know, he's been an interesting one because I think that was always kind of a point of contention when when that draft happened. Was was he the first overall pick? Who they should have picked instead? And I, you know, Slavkovsky, I think started off a little slow this year, but the last, you know, month and a half, two months, I think in the NHL, among all the players that you could be eligible, he's been the best player from that draft class. That's, you know, Logan, you probably have an argument between him and Logan Cooley over the course of the year, who Cooley I thought started off very well. And then this, the last month or two, maybe slowed down a little bit. Um, but, you know, he's played better than um, Korczynski. He's played better for me than, than Juracek, um, you know, than, you know, he's, on their top line. I've seen him on their top. I haven't watched a ton of Montreal lately, but I saw him on their top power play in one of the two of the recent games. Um, seems like he's performing very well, very toolsy, big, powerful, gets skates well, very skilled. Hockey sense is average. That's the, And that's why he wasn't a great first overall pick. Uh, but I think the projection on him remains similar to what I thought two years, uh, two years ago. That I think he's going to be a really good NHL player for a long time, but probably not a star. And that's more as a result of how, mediocre a draft class that was and you and you have 
them back to back right now. Slavkovsky and Cooley. So there, there were kind of some this summer. I think I was ready to say no. Cooley's overtaken him. Uh, to your point, they're pretty much neck and neck here so far uh, in that class uh, this year. Minchikov, the other guy, I think I'd probably put in that in that debate. Yeah, he started off really well, kind of cooled down a little bit of, of in the last few weeks before that injury happened. Um, you can argue whether and and Drysdale taking the power play time away from him at that point, and then obviously Drysdale gets traded, and so it's hard to sit. It's you know I was just we're interested to see Mitchikov he had play the full season without interruptions there, uh, but obviously very impressive when he was playing. Nemec has played well too. Yeah, no, Nemec has been very good. Yeah, like I said I and a little bit of a smaller sample. He came up when Ducky Hamilton got injured, but he's been very he's been very good in the NHL. I think all those guys are in the mix. I thought at the time of the draft. There was no clear first overall pick. I still don't think there was a clear first overall pick. I think you could have reasonable conversations about a number of guys who sh- who could have who be the best player from that draft. But I think Slavkovsky is still firmly in that conversation. All right, one more guy, Corey, before we uh, we let you off the hot seat. I just want to get your thoughts on Connor Zary, who's having a great year. I think by points per game in this rookie class, I think he's second only to Bedard. Um, he's at eighty one, I think, on your list, or maybe eighty eighty one. Yeah. Uh, I know this when you, when you start to get into to deeper in this list, it's probably you know more and more difficult to parse. But can you just talk me through kind of Zary's ranking for you. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually don't read the comments on this article. We're only talking about Zary because Max said that in the comments of the article they were saying he should be higher, which I kind of find very interesting because I found in prior versions of these articles I would have more comments saying Zary was too high. Um, so it's always funny how those uh, things. Out over over the course of years, um, I've never been known as a Connor Zary hater. So that that that's that was an interesting revelation that Max revealed to me. Um, and I I think you know like I said he's a very good player, tremendously skilled, a really good motor. Um, and like I said, having a lot of success now in the NHL, like he had at the in the American League level there for a couple of years. I think with Zary, the you know I've always kind of consistently felt like he's a really nice player. Uh, could be a top six forward in the NHL if he's on the wing. If he's a center, maybe he's more of a good three, fringy two. But the issue with Zary has always been his skating and, and projecting out how that skating will play on an average size body long term. He's kind of a funky looking skater, doesn't doesn't have a lot of explosiveness. Um, so it's always been just about how skilled and how competitive he is that has driven his results. Um, I think, you know, I know we, I don't know, you said he's probably on point pace for like, what, like 60 points this year or something like in the NHL. I, I don't know if that's consistently what he is over the course of his career. Maybe that might be his better years. I think he could be that. Um, but I don't know if there's like this super high end uh, uh, offensive production coming from him, like a 70, 80 something point seasons. Um, so I think Radium 81 says, I think he could be a top six wing, which I think is very fair. And 81 would say, I think he should have gone about 10 spots higher than he went in the actual draft. And uh, as Max, I think, pointed out to me earlier, I think he is shooting like over 20% right now in the NHL. Yeah. Yep. All right. Good stuff there. Let's take a quick break and we will come back. Uh, Scott, stick around if you please. And we will uh, get both of your thoughts on the All-American game. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, fellas, let's talk now about the 2024 Chipotle All-America game, which uh, is different this year, not just because it has pivoted to being presented by Chipotle, but because it's not just all uh, Americans and it's not just all draft eligibles as, as it has been uh, in the past. I, I go back a couple of years, Corey, I think Cole Sillinger played in it when he was uh, during the pandemic. He was playing on the USHL. Um, but what do you think sparked this change and what do you think? What do you make of the decision, I guess? Yeah, Cole Sillinger played in the 
in the All-American game. He is a dual citizen, so it made some sense. Uh, what didn't, what may still made sense, but was really kind of funny, was Cole Sillinger immediately left the All-American prospects game where he wore a Team USA jersey and then flew to go join Team Canada for their U18 World Championships camp, uh, where he had a COVID issue and was ruled ineligible for the team. Uh, so that was a little interesting in, in that regard. Um, uh, but we've actually seen a really interesting evolution of this game. This game started off you know, years before that, where it was being held in September of every season. And it would be an American-only prospect game, but they would it, uh, have not only USHL players and the NTDP, but there would be a bunch of players playing in the CHL who are American. You get the top high school kids in there. And it was a great game. The last one actually had an absolutely star-studded roster in hindsight of Jack Hughes, Trevor Zegers, Matt Boldy, Cam York, Cole Caulfield, uh, Spencer Knight, Artie Kaliev. Uh, you know, that was you know an absolutely great game. Uh, Matt Boldy was fantastic in that game, uh, for example. Uh, and then, you know, years passed and they decided to merge the USHL top prospects game with this game and have it in January, thus excluding the CHL players, but uh, now making it more of a USHL focused game. And they kept it Americans only. And you can see the obvious issue that came up with that is that the USHL, which is predominantly American, doesn't have only American players in it. They have at times some very good Canadian players in it. And oh, just an example of a couple of names. Owen Power. Adam Fantilli, and recently Macklin Celebrini, all of which did not play in the USHL's premier top prospects game. Uh, meanwhile, that game would have several players in it that do not get drafted. So obviously there was an issue there. And then this year they decided to change the format to allow uh, very good underages. They were all in the NTDP, mind you, to play in it. Uh, one of them, James Hagens, was named MVP of the game. And then they allowed non-Americans to play in it, like Michael Haig, Sasha Boivere, who are both A-rated players by NHL Central Scouting, and Matve Greeden, uh, a B-rated player, uh, were all allowed to play in the game this season and all expected to be very high draft picks this upcoming summer. And I think it's a very positive change. I like that everybody in that game looked like an NHL prospect and had a chance to be a, at least be a draft pick. There were several players in recent years uh, who you would watch that game and not come to that conclusion about. Last last year in particular was really ugly. It's the worst I've seen it. There was a dozen kids in that game, almost half of the, the sort of one of the rosters, if you will, that was didn't even have a chance, like didn't even sniff a chance. Uh, and there were still a few players in this year's game that didn't have, that aren't really realistic uh, sort of possibilities of getting picked, but Having Boisvert and Hag and seeing them in that setting, I think, was important for those players. It's a good selling point for the league. Corey mentioned it. We could have seen Celebrini a year ago. We could have seen Artem Lipshunov a year ago. That's the potential one-two pick in this year's draft, getting left out of what is uh, essentially should be the USHL's uh, top prospects game. So uh, even Jaden Perron, who was a, a sort of fabulous USHL player in Chicago last year, there were opportunities to... To sort of bolster the look of the game, drawing Michael Harabel. Michael Harabel. Yeah. So it's, uh, this is a positive development. The hockey was more competitive this year. It was a better game than usual. It's still not great. It's still not perfect as all star games tend to be, but uh, it was a, a step in the right direction, no question. Well, the, the player of the game in this year's event was one of the underagers, and that was James Hagens. Uh, maybe no surprise that we've talked on this show plenty about Hagens' rise, but uh, Scott, talk me through a little bit what you saw from James Hagens on, on the game. Yeah, he looked he looked like the star prospect. He looked a, a cut above. He had a goal and an assist on the first two goals of the game for his team. His line was his team's best line. Uh, it, it, he, he, he was the driver. He was making plays. His speed is a cut above his peers at this level. There's... There's a lot to sink your teeth into with James Haggins. He's the front runner to be number one next year. Uh, we just raised a, a sort of major feature on him at the athletic this week. And he's, he's the real deal. He's a legit sort of first overall quality prospect for 2025. And I said underager. He's, he's not an underager. He is an under 18. Uh, it's just that he's 2025 eligible. So he, he would have been in this game regardless, right, Corey? Yeah. Uh, it, it... 
I I think they they had probably Strammel in this in this game, right. for example. But uh, regardless, I and I think it's because of their program kids they haven't had high end underagers at the USHL only uh, level come to this game before, to my knowledge. Uh, what did you think of Higgins? I mean, anything surprised you or at this point, are you just kind of seeing what we've come to expect from him? Yeah. I mean, I thought his line in general with uh, Teddy Stiga, who's having a ni- nice season there with the program and Christian Humphreys were, were very good. They were making plays, playing with pace. Uh, Stiga brings a lot of energy to his shifts and I think helped complement the speed that, that Higgins can play at. Um, yeah. And just, yeah, I mean, Higgins is, is their best player. If the uh, U.S. is going to win gold, and in April, he's going to need probably be the best player that tournament has a very good chance to do so. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, James is a fantastic prospect, and it's hard. You know, we've talked about him a lot, and we're going to talk about him a lot over the, the, the coming years. How about his the, the 2024 eligible kind of running mate of his on the NTDP team this year, the under 18s, Cole Eiserman? Scott, I, I know there sounds like there's been some talk that maybe Eiserman, who was once talked about as maybe the second or third best player in this class, maybe not trending that way so far this season. Yeah, I think the the sort of casual fan was surprised to see him at number eight on NHL Central Scouting's midterm list of their North American skaters for this year's draft. Uh, That doesn't mean he's going to be a sort of eight to 10 pick in this draft, but there is a growing sentiment amongst scouts, amongst NHL clubs of just some of some frustration with with Cole Eisenman in the way that he plays. Uh, I think less so in terms of the skill and the makeup uh, he's got a dynamic quality as a shooter. He's the best goal scorer in this draft. He's one of the most talented sort of individual stick handlers in this class. In this class, He makes plays one-on-one. He breaks down coverage. He's a dynamic, dynamic player on the power play. All of that remains true. I think it has more to do with habits, uh, body language on the ice at times, showing frustration at the bench, um, forcing shots. We saw some of that, especially in the first half. I thought he was brutal in the first period of the of the All-American game. I thought he was better in the second half, but first period, shooting into shin pads, forcing plays into coverage, sort of making poor poor decisions on the puck. It's been a, a, an issue for him all year long. And then you add into that a player who isn't particularly well-rounded off the puck in terms of working to get open, working back against coverage, the defensive side of the game, puck management inside his own zone. Those are all sort of issues that that scouts have with him. He actually can be a pretty scrappy player. He'll finish his checks and that kind of a thing. Uh, but just th- there's this view that he's a one-dimensional guy and he uh, is going to have to break that. He's going to have to show scouts consistently that he, that he's more than just the dynamic scoring type, right? And some scouts just are, are especially in a draft like this with some high-end centers and definitely four or five very high-end defensemen. There are teams that will just steer clear of of the winger that they that they don't love if he continues to frustrate. And uh, again, he was better in the second half of that game. He made some plays and uh, actually showed some speed. And his skating, I think, has actually improved over the course of this season. Uh, but still, it's the it's the play selection more than anything. I think that is starting to sort of drive some people crazy. And he's going to have to sort of break some habits and change change the way he plays once he gets to the college level a little bit. I think. So Eiserman is a really fascinating evaluation because there's a lot of things you could pick apart about this player. He is an average size winger. His competes okay. Definitely not going to run anybody over anytime soon. Definitely not going to win a ton of battles in the NHL uh, with with his physicality and his effort. Good enough passer, but not really the selling point of his game. Not a great defensive forward by any means. Definitely overshoots pucks. Like Scott said, shooting the shin pads has been a constant thing that he does. He, he He's a chucker. Like whenever he gets a chance to shoot, he shoots. That, that's his mentality. There's all these things you can say about Cole, you know, but in the end of the day, he's got, let's see here, as we record this, he has 32 goals in 30 games this year. So he's on point, he's on pace for a 70-goal season. I think he's got, combining with a 16- and 17-year-old season, he's got something like 42 goals in 44 USHL games. So you could say he's not good at this, 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 and that, but like the, the, the goal scoring production is not just pretty good. It's off the charts. Good. It's, it is Cole Caulfield territory. And, and last I checked, he's turned into a pretty good NHL player. It's been an interesting discussion when I've talked about people who are on the negative side of Cole Eisman, because they will bring up, uh, you know, goal scorers, particularly the program goal scorers like Kiefer Bellows and Oliver Wallstrom. And wonder is he next? 
And he might be, and he might follow that trajectory. But you have to think about the best case scenario too. It's like, okay, well, what if he is the next Cole Caulfield? You know, I think those are, you know, I know, you know, obviously there's other goal scorers and who have come through that don't play for the program. You know, you can think of guys like Ely Tolvanen. You can think about guys like Owen Tippett. You can even think of higher echelon guys like a Phil Kessel or something like that over the years. So I think those are all, I think the debate around him has been very fascinating. It's continued to be fascinating as he enters his most important hockey of the season here in the second half. Um, you know, in, in terms of the Five Nations in February, then obviously the U18 World Championships in April and, and how he performs there, I think will be very important in assessing where he goes at, in the draft. I doubt at this stage he would be a top three pick. I think it's possible he goes in the top five, but I don't think it's a guarantee. If um, it, it, I think five to ten is probably his range right now, if I had to guess. I should say I'd be more surprised if he's not, uh, after I just highlighted all of his weaknesses, I'd still be more surprised if he's not Phil Kessel, Paul Caulfield level, uh, than if he is Oliver Wallstrom or Kiefer Bellows, for example. Like I think it's pretty clear when you watch him that it's a special quality as a goal scorer. So it's just going to come down to which team is prepared to look past some of the other stuff and bet big on a, a clear, clear talent. I don't remember though, like, like maybe with Kessel, I, don't, I this that was that draft was way before my time, and I know obviously the reputation NHL wise, but I don't remember like a compete question on Caulfield. Was there in his draft year? Not a compete, but obviously there was a size question. Yes. The reason why yes. a guy who scored seventy five goals went all the and there was a question about how much of his production was Jack Hughes, um, you know, and 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 those variables. I think what's been interesting in my time doing this, and I've been doing this now for you know close to fifteen years now is I can't think of a guy who was a pure goal scorer who was universally loved, who everybody loved the player. They loved their on-ice habits. They loved their personality. I just think there is something about being a shooter and something about being a goal scorer where you need it, where you have to play a certain way and be of a certain inclination that I think tends to rub people the wrong way. I mean, Artie Cali is another one, for example. Um, Max had mentioned to me, uh, you know, Alexander Holtz, Philip Zadina, Joachim Kamel drop. These are all just some recent examples that just whatever reason people don't see the love. Like Max is saying, yeah, it's like whatever reason people don't like goal scorers, which is very intriguing when you consider the rules of the game. They like the goal. They just don't like the goal scorer. The player type just rubs people the wrong way, and and it has been consistently in my time. I mean, I even go back to the guys like Evander Kane or something like that. Like it just they just rub people the wrong way. I had an interesting not to to carry on on this for too long, but I had an interesting, really interesting conversation with him on a visit a couple of months ago, and he has made the same point that Corey's just making. Of I have to be who I am. I have to play the game that I'm going to play. I've spoken with Nick Ford, the head coach there. He actually thinks that there are times when he overpasses because he's trying to correct against what people think of him. And he's trying to show scouts in the audience, hey, look, I can see the cross-ice pass too. Uh, and, and there are times in games where Four actually wants him to shoot more than he does, believe it or not. There have been 10-shot games this season where they felt like he's passed up four or five good looks that he should be taking because he can score on them. Uh, so there, there's a balancing act there. But he 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 knows this. Like He knows all of this. He's actually a pretty articulate guy considering his reputation amongst NHL scouts. I was really impressed by the way that he sort of spoke about his own game and how introspective he was. Uh, but he also is a very confident kid, uh, even in terms of, I, I asked him point blank about some of the body language stuff. And he says, look, I, I'm an emotional kid. I, sometimes I get mad on the bench. Uh, sometimes I have to talk to my teammates about it afterwards. Uh, like it's, it's just sort of part of who he is. So I do think there will be teams come combine. If he, carries himself that way that are may have their minds changed a little as well. Uh, if he's very honest with them, if he doesn't try to pretend and he just owns sort of who he is, his game, what he's like off the ice, the perceptions people have of him. Uh, he's not, uh, he doesn't seem shy to, to having those conversations, which I think is a positive thing for a player like that. And the player by the name is, is super competitive, high character, great kid. But man, there are some games, especially in recent years, where you watch a guy like Steven Stamkos, and if he's not scoring, his game looks ugly. And like, I think that's the thing with goal scores is you sometimes hate the guys who always shoot until the puck goes in. And then you're really happy they were on your team. 
All right. Uh, one more guy I want to highlight from, from this game. And it's not an NTDP kid. I, Corey, I think it is someone that you highlighted when we talked about the fall classic a few months back. And that is, and I'm going to say this in my finest Boston accent, even though he is not from Boston, because it's a name that, that just demands he, he be a Bruin, frankly. Uh, we'll see where he ends up, but he did score the OT winner in this game, and it's Johnny Mustard. Yeah, I mean, Mustard has looked very impressive this year in the USHL for Waterloo, over a point per game right now. And it's not just the the skill and the scoring that have been intriguing. He's a good skater, maybe even a very good skater, you can argue. I, I think he's a tremendous skater. Yeah, yeah, you know, with decent size. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of really intriguing traits there for him. You know, I'll be curious, you know, he is a, a Canadian. Uh, so I'll be interested to see whether he goes to the U18 Worlds in the spring. Uh Canada has done um in recent years, has has tended to take the USHL kids. That, that they value, uh, given that, you know, they won't have access to all the, the top Canadian prospects. So I could see him going to play for Team Canada in, in a couple of months. And like that, he's trending in a very positive direction. I liked him in the spring, thought maybe hey, this guy could be a maybe a third, fourth round pick. Now I think you're talking about maybe he can be a second round pick. Like he, he looks like a very nice pro prospect right now. He played 16U AAA hockey last year too. And those guys rarely make the jump and have the immediate sort of lead your team in scoring point per game rookie season kind of jump. So a credit to him for adjusting as quickly as he did in Waterloo. And the athleticism is clear, uh, but he, he plays hard. He works hard. There's 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 a lot, yeah, a lot to like about Johnny Musk. All right, good stuff. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back for the mailbag. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. All right, we are back with the mailbag, and Scott's going to stick around with us for this one, so bonus content for you all. Um, Steven wants to know, Corey, how many first-year players can a team realistically incorporate in one season at an AHL and NHL level? Feels like that's going to be a very different answer, depending if we're talking AHL or NHL. Right, and he's uh, he elaborates a little bit in that question because he mentions that he, he his favorite team's going to have a bunch of guys turn pro next season at the same time, in particular Arizona with Connor Geeky, Maverick Lamaru, uh, Artem Duda, Miko Batika, Sam, Sam Lipkin, uh, and several others could, could all theoretically be pro players next season. And, and that does happen when you have a lot of players uh, drafted all in the same time period. We saw, for example, when the Kings had a bunch of draft picks that they they run into those issues at the American League level. It creates competition. Um, and I think this is why, frankly, a lot of NHL teams love drafting college players and European players after the first two to three rounds, 
Um, you usually will, I hear that often is that once the premium CHL players are gone, the guys who you, you know, are have a top three round grade on, even if you didn't draft them in the top three rounds per se, that teams will almost always defer to the college or the Euro guys, just because you get the four years to decide on them. You don't have to decide whether you want to sign them or not right away. You have to worry about the limited minutes at the American league level you have to give out. Um, so for the, those reasons, like you sometimes will even see teams that who like their college player and think that he can make the jump, just tell them to go back for another year because we don't have we don't have ice time for you right now. So I could see that happen with say guys like Sam Lipkin or, or or you know something like maybe Artem. I don't know what they're Artem Dude is a funny one guy playing second round pick, good player too playing CIS hockey right now. That was he's kind of a very unique scenario at the at the moment for Arizona. Um, but uh, and obviously I think there's. While everybody tries to say the American League is all about development, uh, there is, frankly, an incentive among especially the coaching staff to win hockey games at that level. So they also don't tend to want a ton of young players turning pro all at the same time. Uh, some of them could really help them, and sometimes some of them are not ready to be difference makers at that level. And I've seen this in Detroit the last couple of years, especially last year. Like Donovan Sabrango was a guy who had been – honestly, fairly promising for what he had done in the AHL. He, he went in the COVID year when there was the exemption and he was there again. And then last year, I felt like he was in the coast for a bunch of the season because they just got this big influx of defensemen all turning pro at once. A lot of them coming over from Europe and it, it does leave guys without, you know, the, the minutes that you would want them to have. I think NHL wise, Corey, is it fair to say like two or three is probably the most you want to be breaking in on a team. Sometimes if you're like, a, you know, deep rebuild Chicago type team, I guess you can go a little further, but. Yeah, it really depends on where you are as an organization. But yeah, I, I have a hard time seeing more than three rookies on a team at a given time. Yeah. All right, Scott, this next one's for you. Jenna wants to know for draft over agers that caught your eye, either at the World Juniors or in general, besides the obvious like Pulkin, and I don't know who else would necessarily be included uh, in, in the obvious. She mentions uh, Tommy Manisto, but hasn't seen him mentioned much anywhere. And anyone come to mind for you? Yeah, I mean, Manisto's an easy one. Uh, I've seen him play a bunch this year. I made a trip to MSU earlier in the season. He was unbelievable in the two games while I was there, even in a fourth-line role uh, at Michigan State. One of the best skaters, period, on the planet. One of the fastest players I've ever watched at this level. Uh, and that, when you've got parents who are championship body sort of weightlifters, and you can see when you run into him around the rink how big and strong he is as well, even though he's only sort of six feet tall kind of thing, he's jacked. Uh, so easy, easy to sort of envision Tommy becoming a, a sort of fourth line checker type. Uh, the question with Tommy has always been whether there's enough offense uh, there. And I think that's a worthwhile question. I think we'll start to see more of it when he plays higher in the lineup uh, under Adam Nightingale at MSU as a sort of upperclassman eventually. Uh, beyond them, I mean, Pulkinen, she meant, Jenna mentioned Pulkinen, the easy one there as a sort of big kid who's shown some actually some surprising skill with the puck on his stick. He's made some some sort of highlight reel or close plays uh, this season. So he's an easy one. There are two more that I that sort of immediately come to my mind. I'm building my midterm sort of midseason list at the moment that'll be out in a couple of weeks. So they're front of mind right now. One is Anthony Romani uh, with North Bay, one of the best players in the OHL this season. Actually has, has been a pretty consistently good player across levels, but has really taken a step this season. I think he's got something like 60 points in 40 games. Uh, has been dominant. He's a strong kid. He can skate. He can shoot it. Uh, his skating has come along. It wasn't always a, a sort of strength, but it's become average or above average at this point. So Romani's one. He's going to get picked for sure this year. Uh, Andre Becker uh, is another one. He was at the World Juniors, has been a standout with Prince George. They've got two of the best lines in junior hockey, like two legitimate first lines in Prince George. And his line with Tarek Parasek, who's another kid who will be a sort of second round, likely a second round pick in this draft, and Zach Funk. That that line of Funk, Parasek, and Becker has been unbelievable, uh, like dominant, dominant in the WHL this season. Uh, Becker's a kid who who should get picked. And then there's one who's actually an 0-3, a goaltender named Ilya Nabokov, who's playing with Magnitogorsk in the KHL. He's a six-foot goaltender, and I think that's part of the reason he's been passed up twice already. This is now his third kick at the can. He, he may be one of only a couple of 2003s that even gets picked or is even in consideration. It's pretty rare for guys in their third shot at it to get picked. But Nabokov's been really, really good for a good KHL team this year. So he's another one. Nabokov, Romani, uh, and then the obvious ones. Becker, I like. 
there's 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 four or five guys there for sure that are that are at least interesting. Uh, not sort of you're not going to see them be like Brett Leeson and get picked uh, in the second round. I don't think uh, Leeson. I think in hindsight was probably picked too high. Um, but th- those guys, uh, I'm not sure about Ministo, but those other four should all uh, should all get picked here. Owen oh, Alard didn't get picked. Is that too obvious? Obviously, after the World Junior. Yeah, I think teams like uh, again, excellent, excellent skater. And when you're six foot two and you you can really skate and put people on their heels and forecheck, there's going to be some sort of value there as a potential fourth line sort of role playing type at the next level. Uh, I think I have concerns about Owen's game in terms of handling the puck and it's it's a little sloppy for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, if six foot two kid who's at almost two hundred pounds and can fly, there's there's definitely some teams that will uh, will consider Owen. Yeah. All right, Corey, next one is to you and it's from Mark. Uh, he wants to know Zane Perrick has become a fan favorite on Twitter. What's your projection on him as of now? Is he more popular for fans than he is for NHL scouts? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, you know, in terms of whether he's more popular for fans than he is from scouts, uh, you know, I think in general, uh, I think the public discourse on defensemen tends to be a little bit more optimistic for the Point producing skilled defensemen than NHL teams who I think tend to more covet the two-way defenders with the size and the mobility and the physicality. And we kind of saw that play out, for example, last year's draft, where I think the typical uh, fan or the typical article I would read would say that Axel Sandin Pelica or Mikhail Gulyayev was going to be the first defenseman picked, when in reality, you know, we saw David Reinbacker and Dmitry Simashev and Tom Volander uh be the, be the first defense that ever picked. Although in hindsight, maybe Sendin Pelica should have gone a little higher given the year he's having, how good a world junior he's having. But that just tends to be what teams value. In terms of, uh, terms of Berzane, um, you know, he's a very talented offensive defenseman, really good hockey sense, good skater, ton of skill. And there are some questions on his game. I think defensively he has some he has some wards, not the most competitive player in in the in the world. Um but man, it's a lot of offense, like in this guy's game. Like I think uh, the last five games in the OHL, he has seven goals and I think like fourteen points or something like that. And it's just a you know he, he's basically the best offensive defenseman I've seen as a seventeen year old at that level, basically since Ryan Ellis. And you know, and that and Ryan Ellis went eleventh overall. I think it's right, right around where this guy's going to go in the NHL draft. It's right, right around where I haven't projected. He definitely has his warts. And but I you know he kills penalties for Saginaw. He plays big minutes. I don't think he's the most physical defender I've ever seen in my in my life. But I don't think he's a terrible defender. He's not Ryan Merkley out there or anything like that. Uh, you know I think he's got a really good chance to be a top four defenseman, a guy you can play on our first power play in the NHL. And yeah, like I, said, I mean just the year he's having is just incredible. All right, uh, next one's to you, Scott. Uh, Patrick McConnell wants to know who is better defensively, offensively, and the best skater between Artem Levshunov, Sam Dickinson, and Carter Yakumchuk, uh, as well as any other differentiations you see between them. Uh, so sticking to the 2024 defense class here. This Big question. May, <laughs> this may seem like a, a too simple an answer, but I'll go defensively, offensively, and skating all in favor of Artem Levshunov. Uh, certainly he's the best skater of those three. Uh, certainly offensively he's the most ambitious of those three. Yakumchuk at the WHL level definitely likes to try to make things happen and jump off the line. And he ends up deep in the offensive zone at the front of the net a whole lot as well. But Lev Shunov watching him over the last couple of years, he doesn't have a care in the world out there. He's just out there to rip around and make things happen. And whether there's an opportunity offensively or an opportunity defensively to step up and lay someone out, he is a physical menace on the ice in terms of the, just how physically mature and advanced he is that way. Uh, certainly Sam Dickinson is as well. Sam's a, a really good defender at the OHL level and probably the closest uh, to Lev Shunov in terms of that group for me defensively. Um, but our, Lev Shunov's a, like, he's got an opportunity to be a, a, a real force at the NHL level. I truly believe that. So uh, certainly uh, I'll go with Lev Shunov. He, his decision-making I don't think is as refined as uh, Dickinson. Dickinson plays the game with uh, sort of uh a, a better head on his shoulders, if you will. Uh, but Lev Shunov just, there's nothing he can't do out there in terms of the athleticism. And even when he does make a mistake, correcting for mistakes and that kind of a thing, 
he's uh, I'm I'm a I'm a big big fan. I believe he's in in a class of as I mentioned earlier, four or five sort of legit high end high end, maybe even six if you include Yakum Chuck in that group. High end high end defenseman. I I still believe that Liv Shunov is uh, the the best of the bunch for me. Interesting. Like I would agree offensively, but I think defensive. I think he's a good defender, but I'd have him three out of three of that group defensively. Especially, I think Dickinson's an exceptional defender. Yeah, I, I think there's a case for Dickinson defensively. I I would not include Yakumchuk in that group. Yakumchuk plays hard, uh, and and there's some tools there, but I, I find he makes a lot of mistakes on the ice and can't correct for them in the same way someone with Shunov's just natural ability can. Yeah, the hockey sense. I think Lefchenov's a smarter player. Like I, said, I, 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 I still think I'd have him three of three, but I definitely has a there's a hockey sense differential there. there though I agree. Yeah, uh, that this is a natural lead into the next question here, guys, because Logan Horn wants to know what you make of the wide gap of opinions on Carter Yakumchuk. Scott, you talked about him as being kind of maybe the the fifth or sixth of this group. Corey, I think you have him pretty firmly in that group of top defensemen at this point. I'll, I'll go to yeah. you first here, Corey. Like, what do you make of this kind of gap of opinions on Yakumchuk? Yeah, I mean, I think like we talked about it on the last episode. I think he's a stud. Like, I think he's going to be one of the, the first players picked in this draft. Six uh, three, mobile defenseman, ton of skill, big time shot, physical. I mean, you look at like some of like the high picks that we've seen in the WHL among defensemen in recent years. Like, look at how many goals Matt Dumba scored. Look at how many goals Shea Theodore scored in his draft year. Look at how many goals, say, Josh Morris, he scored in his draft year. He's going to have like twice as many of them by the end of the season. This guy could score 25 to 30 goals in his draft season. And he has the size and he skates well and he's physical. There's a lot of really good positives about this guy's game. And I think it all comes – why people don't like him. I don't I don't know if a lot of NHL people don't like him. But if, when you look at the public list, my guess is that because he had a bad U18 Worlds. He wasn't good there. He was very mediocre there last spring. but. Frankly, like whenever time, whenever I watch him with the Hitman, I think he he stands out in a major way. All right, uh, next one is also for Corey. Uh, Flyover Hockey wants to talk about David Edstrom versus Otto Stenberg and an interesting case study from a couple of Verlunda players. Why are you higher on Edstrom compared to Stenberg, and is it due to you know one performing against men versus peers, floor ceiling, play style, and profile? Where, where do you stand on this? Yeah, I, I just think. One other game's translates a little bit better to the pros, and I frankly think it's translated better to the pros this season. I think Edstrom has been the better player than Stenberg uh, in Frolunda this season, and not by a massive margin, but I tends tends to play more minutes than him, and it has played a bigger role. I, you know, I, I thought this season, you know, he is you know a couple inches bigger. He competes hard. He's a good skater. He's been on their power play at times this season. There's just a lot to like there. I don't think he's the most dynamic player in the world. Stenberg definitely is a better shot. And at times will show a little bit more natural playmaking in his game, but that'd be the differential for me. I think I like both players a lot. I have Stenberg rated pretty highly on the list. I just put out same thing with Edstrom. They're both good players, but I think over the long term to the pro game, I like Edstrom just a little bit more. All right. Scott Dons wants to know about the back half of the first round of this 2024 draft class. He's coming at this from a flyers perspective. He thinks if the flyers are picking with potentially three firsts in the twenties, can they get some impact players there? Usually, obviously, by by the twenties, a lot of the, the slam dunk impact guys are are spoken for. Yeah, I don't love the more the more I've watched this this age group, the more I've sort of softened my stance on where I'm at, especially on that sort of back half of the first round, second round range, which I think ultimately decides whether a draft class is good or bad in the long term. Uh, obviously if you've got a McDavid or a Bedard at the very top, it's a difference maker for long-term as well. But I have uh, just in building my list, this, 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 these last couple of weeks, um, the, the one thing emerged, the first is that there was really like a dozen players that I really, really, really like at the top with Yakum Chuck being that sort of 12th on that list, that sort of bubble guy for that top sort of 11 that I really like. Um, after that, it's it's tougher time differentiating. And normally I don't feel that way at this point in the season, having watched as much of these kids as we have, it's uh, right from guys like Michael Brandsike Nygaard, who are good players, well-liked players by scouts through to some of those sort of skill guys like Igor Chernyshev out of Russia. Um, it's, it's tough. Even, even some of the, the all American kids that we talked about, Michael Hag and Sasha Boisvert, good players. Have they sort of established themselves 
as clear sort of front half of the first round guys, or are they sort of late first, early seconds? There's a lot of guys that I feel that way about. There's not a lot of guys who have sort of really solidified themselves. When I was picking sort of 13 through 16 on my list that rounding out the front half of that first round, there weren't guys that I was bullish on. There weren't guys that I was sure about. Uh, so I think that just speaks to a draft class. And maybe some of that is still COVID lingering. Some of these kids lost their final year of minor hockey, especially the Ontario kids. Uh, I, I do think that's sort of playing a role. There are other players who've stepped up. Tijiginla has had a really good year. Like there are players who've been nice stories, who've sort of grabbed hold of it. But there are others who played well last year, like Maxime Massé, for example, who was the CHL Rookie of the Year last year who hasn't done that and hasn't grabbed hold of it. Now scouts are worried about his pace of play and his skating. And, and there, there are just too many guys like that in this draft class. So uh, I don't love, uh, if you've got three picks like the Flyers do, for example, I don't love the opportunities of getting sort of high, high-end guys, high-impact guys in the late first round. I do think in last year's draft, there are going to be a number of those types who come out of last year's group, for example. And I'm just... At this point, at least, I'm not I'm not sold on that range yet. All right, Corey. Charlie wants to know if Consta Hellenius is a winger or a center in the NHL, which could factor into whether or not he belongs in that top twelve or not. Uh, I had some questions on that at the start of the year for Hellenius, but the more I've watched him this year, even though I thought actually his World Juniors was fine, it wasn't anything special. But watching him at the legal level, um, I do think he could be an NHL center. When you look at small players and think about whether they can be setters, you're asking you know, a couple of questions. Can they do they skate well? Do they compete well? Are they smart enough? Can they, you know, can they drive the play and be an NHL playmaker? And I think Melanius checks all those boxes. I think he had he's a very good all-around player. He's physical, despite that he's not that big. He plays with pace, he makes a lot of plays. You know, is he gonna be the most dynamic 5'11 guy you've ever seen in your life? No, you know, he's not Logan Cooley, for example. But but I think he has the qualities to make it as a pro um, in, in the middle, in a top six, potentially. You know, I think if he hits, you're hoping to get like a Vincent Trocheck type. I think that's the dream scenario for someone like Hellenius. All right. And last one to Scott. Uh, Blackhawks fanatic wants to know about your projection for the NHL on Frank Nazar. Uh, can you see him being an impactful player? And roughly what line would you project him to fit on uh, in, the, in the future for Chicago? Yeah, Nazar's Nazar's an interesting one. Obviously, the injuries play a part in in everything that's gone on with him over the last couple of years, including in his draft year before surgery, and he didn't play fully healthy and all of that. But even when he has been healthy, his game has come with some mixed reviews in terms of who you talk to. I actually had about a month before the uh, about a month before the World Juniors, someone from his camp texted me and said, "Just what have you thought of Frank to the first sort of month and a half of this season, the way he's sort of adjusted?" And I texted back saying. Honestly, I've watched a few of his games and I haven't been overly impressed. He isn't impacting play like he should be. He isn't involved relative to his skill level in the game as much as he should be. He doesn't get off the wall as much as he should. There's a lot of perimeter play happening. And then oddly enough, I texted that same person back a few a few games later and he his last couple of games right before the World Juniors, he was excellent. It looked like it had started to sort of click for him. And then lo and behold, he was very good at the World Juniors as well, especially in the front half of the World Juniors. So it's tough. He's, uh, he, the, a, I'm not sure he's going to be a center for them, even though that's his natural position. Uh, I think there's a chance he ends up on the wing, especially if they like a player like Oliver Moore as a center, or if they draft another center this year and uh, near the top of the draft with one of their two first round picks kind of thing. That plus Bedard plus Moore, players like Moore sort of with their competitiveness and the way that a player like Moore skates fits as a as more of a natural center long term. Um, they got to figure out whether Reichel's a center or a winger, which I know they still haven't made up their mind on. So uh, it does feel like w- there will be a crunch at some point with that Blackhawks roster. Not all of these kids are going to hit. And Nazar does feel like a player who does sort of naturally fit in potentially as a winger. Uh, just with the way he skates and and his ability to play make from the perimeter of the ice and all of that. But if if you're looking for a super competitive sort of drive the bus guy, I'm just not sure after watching Frank for several years that that's who he's going to be. I think he's going to flash with his skill and his play on the puck and his skating, certainly. Uh, But I, I could also see an NHL coach becoming a little frustrated with the type of player that he is at some point. So can he be a top six power play one, if not, top six power play one is he a top six power play two guy I think that's 
that's what you hope for uh, in Frank. I think he's going to be that. It's almost certainly going to be on the wing rather than at center. And then I'm not sure he's the bottom six type. And as much as roles are changing in today's NHL and there's more skill guys on third lines, NHL coaches still need still need penalty killers. They still need other options. And Frank's not really going to be that other option for them in terms of a role player. So uh, he's he's a tricky one. I it, there's a there's another level there, but it does feel not to use boom or bust, but it does feel like sort of a high ceiling, low floor guy for me. So he's, I, I, I think what is best for him would be to go back to college for another year. I'm sure he's itching after two years and the injury and sort of playing well and getting points this year. I'm sure he, it has crossed his mind to turn pro out of this season. Uh, I think a third year in college would do him a lot of good and, and give both me and the Blackhawks a better sense for what they, what they have. Great stuff. That is going to do it for us. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Athletic Hockey Show Prospect Series. You can follow us on YouTube at youtube.com slash at the Athletic Hockey Show. And right now, get a one-year subscription to The Athletic for $2 a month when you visit theathletic.com slash hockey show. If you do that, you read all Scott and Corey's stuff, you're going to be a smarter hockey fan. We'll talk to you soon.